we're glad that you are with us tonight. This is our Wednesday night Bible study, and for a number of weeks now, we've been looking at this subject, I am the Lord that heals you. It comes from a verse in in, uh, Exodus where God had just led the children of Israel out of Egypt, a nation that was uh, very advanced scientifically, medically, uh, but also was very idolatrous. They had over 2,000 gods that they worshipped. And uh, they were brought out, and God had to take them through a process, even though they were his covenant children, of, in essence, reintroducing himself to them. And one of the ways God did that was through experiences they went through, and then he would give them a name of himself. And, and the, the, it was, there were compound names. Uh, the English version is Jehovah. Um, and it is, the, it is God, it is Yahweh, I am the self-existent one. It refers to the God who redeems, the God who's self-existent. And, and Moses was introduced with this one. God just said, he said, who are you? He said, I am. I am that I am. And then there's, there are a number of names, but there's seven redemptive names, seven names that God reveals himself, which are compound names. It's I am, and then there's an aspect of who he is. And the very first one of those that God revealed to his people was in Exodus 15, verse 23, when he just brought them out of Egypt. They're three days out into the wilderness. They run out of water. We talked about this a number of of weeks ago. And they start complaining. They found a brook, and they start drinking of the water, but it's it's, it's either either poisonous or it's, it's very bitter. And so they get angry. They get frustrated. Moses, they get frustrated with God. And they cry out to God. Moses tries out to God. Cry out to Moses. Moses tries out to God. God tells Moses to take a tree and to throw it into the into this water. And when Moses is obedient and does that, the water's healed and becomes sweet and healthy to drink. And that is a type of the cross. Uh, the tree is a type of the cross, and it's taking the cross and throwing it into the bitterness of sin, the bitterness of our life, the bitterness of what Satan's done to us through the curse, and then bringing healing to that. And then God announces to them from this, his first covenant name, I am Jehovah Rapha, I am the Lord who heals you. And the Hebrew word Rapha means to be made whole in whatever area. So that's the title of the series, that's what we've been looking at. And one of the reasons I believe it's important for us to look at it now is really two reasons that are in, in my heart. One is because it reveals something about the nature and character of God. We talked about this last week. We've developed the, the Western world, Western theology has developed over hundreds of years this idea, this dualism, which comes from, a philosoph- from a Greek philosophers and from uh, other theologians, that in God's mind there's a, there's a spirit realm and the natural realm, and that's true, and that in God's mind they're separate and they're not as important as each other. And yet, and therefore, the, whatever's of the natural physical realm, uh, because it's dirty, because it's got sin in it, is just, and it's temporary, it's just in God's eyes, it's just not, not that important. And of course, if God has to choose between spiritual helping us and physically helping us, the spiritual is more important because it's eternal. But that's not what the Bible tells us about God. He created your body. He, he considers your body beautiful, whether you do or not. It's, it's, it's the house you live in on this earth. And God, God created it. 
and for us to enjoy, for us to, but we have to take care of it, of course. And, and so what we learned, and we spent some time last week talking about, so it reveals something about the character and nature of God, because Western theology basically has predominantly taught us that, the, that our body's just not important to God, and he didn't redeem that. But that's not what the Bible tells us. It tells us God cares about every area of your life. If, if, he, if he cares about every hair in your head, then he cares about you. He cares about your body as well as your soul and as well as your spirit. So that's the first thing. The second thing we're looking at in this series is that healing, physical healing, according to the Bible, is an integral part of the gospel. And we're called as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel. And in most of the church has left a major part of that out. So that's another reason why we're looking at that, and I want to focus on that a little bit more, a little bit more tonight. So we're going to go back and look at some scriptures we looked at last time. In Matthew 4, we'll start there. It's just one verse, because we looked at this. When Jesus is, this follows the story where Jesus has now been uh, called out into full-time ministry. And he has been baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. And the Spirit of the living God has come down upon him, has rested upon him, and has anointed him. And now he begins his public ministry in John chapter 4. At the end of this chapter, you have this verse that's very insightful into what we're talking about. And Jesus went about all Galilee. It, in, the, in the Greek tense, it's not saying he did this once. This was part of his normal course of ministry and operation. He went about in all Galilee, and look what he did. This is what he predominantly did. He taught in their synagogues. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I want to break that down a little bit, because we hear the term preaching, and we think of somebody standing behind the pulpit, pounding on a pulpit, and yelling and screaming, pointing and spitting, spitting and, you know, all the kind of... No, the word preach just means to proclaim, to declare, to state boldly. So we're going to read it this way. He went about teaching in their churches, basically, and proclaiming boldly the gospel of the kingdom. Well, the word gospel is a kind of a spiritual term. It comes from an English term, um, uh, gospel, which means good news. Literally, in the Greek language, it means to tell something good. Eulangolia, broken down into the, the prefix, which is E-U-O, which, E-U, uh, E-A-U, which means something good, and logos, which means to declare something. So gospel literally means good news. And what we've done so often, I did a series on this a number of years ago, we've taken this term gospel, and we think of it in terms of a religious term. Well, the gospel's the story of Jesus. The gospel is, is this story. And that's true, that's what the gospel's about. But in order for it to be the gospel, it has to be good news. Not bad news, good news. And so Jesus went around teaching in their churches and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And how did he do that? Healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. So we saw last week that Jesus' public ministry, and that just doesn't mean behind a pulpit, Jesus' ministry was these things, teaching, 
and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and then he acted out that good news by healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. So the gospel includes God's kingdom bringing deliverance from whatever Satan has brought into this world through the opening in the garden, through the sin. And I know Pastor Ray taught on that, where sickness comes from. Sickness is part of the door that was opened when Adam and Eve sinned in that garden. And sickness is just the fruit of sin. It's, it's in, death was what God proclaimed. If you eat this fruit, if you disobey me, literally in the Hebrew it says, in dying you will die. So the wages of sin, the curse that it brings is death. And sickness is just death on the way. If most sicknesses, many sicknesses, if they're not, if they're not cured or checked, will eventually weaken your body and will eventually basically prepare it for death. So as Pastor Ray well laid out so well, sin's root, sickness's root, is in sin, and sin goes back to the garden. So in order for God to redeem us, he has to redeem the whole, the whole curse that was brought through that sin, or he's left something out. So when Jesus is, when the Bible says Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, in that good news of the kingdom is everything the kingdom is about, and the kingdom of God is about redeeming man fully back from everything that Satan has brought into this world through that door that was opened through sin. So Jesus, this tells us what Jesus was doing as his ministry began. Now, I'm going to skip over some things because in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7, we have what we call the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lays forth essentially what is the basic constitution of that kingdom, how that kingdom operates. And then you go into chapter 8 and we begin a series of events. And I'm just going to quickly summarize them because I'm going to then pick up after that. So after this, he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. Acts chapter 8, he heals a leper. He heals the centurion's son. He heals Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. In Acts chapter uh, 9, Matthew chapter 9, he heals a paralytic. He heals the, he, he delivers, uh, he, he delivers a man from a legion of demons. He restores the sight to two blind men and he heals a man who is mute. And then we come to the end of chapter 9 and we're going to pick up in verse 35. And Jesus now goes about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogue, here we go again, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease among the people. What I want you to see tonight is how Jesus connects the kingdom of God with physical healing. Physical healing is part of what Jesus meant by the good news that God's kingdom coming to the earth will mean for mankind. So it is an integral part of the gospel. The good news of the kingdom. So let's go on down. Let's look at what goes out of this. 
So, because often we just take these things out of context. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. So one of the major reasons Jesus healed people was he was moved with compassion. And this tells us something about God's character. God has redeemed us because he loves us. God has redeemed us because he has compassion on us. The word compassion in English as well as in the Greek that's behind this doesn't mean to feel sorry for somebody. You can feel sorry for somebody and not be emotionally connected with them. But the word compassion means to feel it along with them. It's kind of the idea of a parent, especially maybe a mother or a father, when your small child is awake at night with an earache and they're crying or they're screaming, and it's not the screaming that's annoying you, the fact that your child is in pain is, is, is pulling at your heart. You would even, you'd bear that pain for them if you could. You'd do anything to relieve them for that pain because you're feeling that for them. That's what that word compassion means. So Jesus isn't just sit, sitting there on the edge of, of on the mountain looking down on Jerusalem, feeling sorry for Jerusalem. His heart's breaking. He weeps over Jerusalem. Because why? Because they're weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Verse 37. And so he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In other words, something's got to be done. See, there are a number of places where it tells us Jesus was moved. He saw something. There's a pattern here. He saw something. He was moved by compassion, and then he did something. And that's a pattern for us, for God to open our eyes to see a need and to the point that we're moved by it to the point we have to do something. Somebody has to do something. So what did he do? He said, he said the harvest is truly plentiful. There's a need out there. There are people out there. Their lives are broken. They're not just broken in sin, but their sickness, disease. Satan is destroying their lives, and he was moved by that. And he said, the labors, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, so what are we to do? Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. And we tend to stop there. All right, we're to pray the labors into harvest. But Jesus acted on what he said. Go to chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus now acts on sending labors into the harvest. When he called the twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits. Now the word power there is not the Greek word dunamis, which literally means the power and ability of God. This is the Greek word exousia, which means authority. So literally it says he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and look at this, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of of disease. So Jesus now is moved. See, we read these things so often as theological statements that Jesus was living this out. He sees this need in Jerusalem. He's touched with it. He's been, he's been teaching the kingdom, preach, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and now he comes to, the, to, to Jerusalem where the heart of God is, and he starts weeping. He's hurting, 
And he says, we've got to pray for the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. So what does he do? He takes these 12 that he has and he prepares to send them out into the harvest and their responsibility. He gives them the ability, the, the, the authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. Now what he does is he selects among the group of disciples that were following him, he selects 12 of them. And we'll go down to, I think it's what's the next verse, verse that I have for you. Is for, yeah. So these 12, now Jesus sends out, commanding them, saying, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, nor any of the city of Samaria. Why? Because the responsibility under the covenant with Abraham was to send the Messiah, first of all, to God's covenant people. And if you read in Romans 9, you'll see what God's plan was because God knew that Israel would basically reject the Messiah and therefore God would take the Messiah and the gospel to the Gentile world, which is most of us, and he would use us to make the Jews jealous. That's God's plan. But So this is why he's saying don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, verse 6 but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And here's what you're to do, verse 7. Go and preach or proclaim what? That the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. It has come. And here's how you're to proclaim it. Because remember, preach, pre- preach doesn't mean necessarily speak with words. It means to declare and proclaim something. You can do that not just with words, but you can do that more effectively with your deeds. Heal the sick. Here it is again. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. So it wasn't just something Jesus did. He now gives this to his 12 disciples to send them out. Their purpose was to be an extension of his proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Uh, now, Jesus does this again. We don't have the scripture. In Luke ten nineteen or chapter 10, he sends out the 70. Now, you understand, because we think of the disciples as the 12. But the disciples just means it refers to the group of people that followed him to be taught and trained by him. The common practice in that day was for people, for Jewish males that were interested to, to attach themselves to a rabbi. And each rabbi had his own message, each rabbi had his own method of teaching, and they would attach themselves to that and be called disciples or disciplined followers. There's a point where those disciples of John the Baptist begin to ask John questions about this other rabbi, Jesus from Nazareth. So Jesus didn't just have the 12, he had a group of 70 that were consistently following him around, and then there was the large crowd. But in Luke chapter 9, he goes through what we've just seen here for the 12, and then in Luke chapter 10, he calls the 70 to them, and he does the same thing with them. He gives them authority over the demons. He gives them authority to heal the sick, and he tells them to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And in chapter, verse 19, they come back all excited and said, Master, Master, even the demons were subject to us in their name. In other words, it worked. And just where Jesus says, calm down, don't get so excited 
I saw him fall like lightning out of heaven. So I understand that. But rejoice instead that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, get your focus back on what is really important, but I'm glad you did what you did. So there's another example where Jesus does this. But here's what, where religion has stepped in and interpreted this. And this is part of what we need to understand. We talked a little bit about that last week. Because these teachings, whether you've received them or not, they've been driven into the church. And it affects the church, not just, not just our own individual thinking. You understand, you can have individual unbelief and you can have corporate unbelief. There was one man, and we'll touch on him later on, where Jesus, he asked Jesus to heal him. I think he's blind. And Jesus brings him out of the city. I think it's Bethsaida. Brings him out of the city, heals him out of the city, and then tells him, whatever you do, don't go back into that city. Why? Because he knew if you go back into that city, their unbelief, because he'd already cursed the city, their unbelief is going to pull this healing back out of you. So there's a corporate unbelief. And in our Western world, so much of the church has this set back in their foundational thinking. And I want to give you an example of that. Because their teaching very often in the church is Jesus did these miracles. They don't doubt Jesus did the miracles. But Jesus did the miracles to prove who he was. And they take these scriptures and say, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God and he proclaimed it by healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead to establish it as the, to prove that the kingdom of God had come. In fact, I'm going to read you, and if you want, it's in my notes. I'm going to read this to you. This is a quote, well, I'll tell you who it is because it shows up in the notes, from Matthew Henry's commentary, a well-respected commentary on the Bible, one of the most completes. Listen, this is his comment on this verse. The power that he gave them to work miracles was for the confirmation of their doctrine. When he sent them to preach the same doctrine that he had preached, he empowered them to confirm it by the same divine seals or proofs, which could never set to a lie. Listen carefully. This is not necessary now that the kingdom of God has come. To call, listen to this, to call for miracles now is to lay again the foundation when the building has already been raised. The point being settled, the doctrine of Christ's sufficiency attested by the miracles which Christ and his apostles wrote, listen to this, is tempting God to ask for more signs. Wow. The problem is there's no scripture to back that up. Nowhere does the Bible say that. And in fact, I'm going to show you that the Bible says just the opposite. Jesus says just the opposite. There is, that's man's doctrine. And man forms these doctrines very often to explain our experience. And so they look at the fact, if you even go through the book of Acts, the book of Acts begins with miracle after miracle after miracle, and they're not done, all done by the apostles. Stephen performs miracles. Philip performs miracles. There's, the, uh, uh, there's others that perform miracles that aren't even listed as the apostles. But then as you go further in the book of Acts, you find that they're not as frequent. They are there. They, even, the book ends with Paul healing everybody on, on an island. 
But they gradually, at least according to the, 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 what's shown in the book of Acts, they gradually began to decrease. And then you go through the history of the church. And there are periods when they're increasing and there are periods where they're decreasing. And they happen, I, we may not go through this in this series sometime, but I can take you through and show you documented evidence where there were miracles in every, every age of the church. But there are major times when they're not in predominance as they were in the book of Acts. So does that mean, Think, listen carefully, does that mean that God only intended for those in the beginning? If that's true, I don't know what the rest of these are. But, but there have also been times, major times, when, when there have been great revivals and people getting saved and dramatic outpourings of the Spirit of God and people getting saved, and then there are times when that just kind of decreases and wanes, wanes down. Does that mean it was no longer God's will to save people? Of course not. It comes because of unbelief. It comes because of teaching like this. So that does not explain, that does not mean because we haven't experienced it or not experienced it now, that God withdrew it at the end. But I want to show you some other things. The decrease in the number of miracles does not prove that their purpose has passed away. We have periods when the number of conversions to Christ has decreased, yet no one questioned whether that was still part of God's plan. A better explanation is really what Jesus said at one point, it's your unbelief that's limited the proclamation of God's kingdom. If Jesus healed to establish, establish that his kingdom was here, then why did he tell people not to tell other people? I'm going to go through some. Matthew 8, 4. He healed the leper and told him not to tell anybody. Matthew 12, 15 and 16. He healed an entire crowd and warned them to not make him known. Mark 6, 36. He healed a man that was both deaf and mute and he told him not to tell anybody. Mark 8.26, a blind man, this is the guy he took out of the town, healed him and told him not to go back and tell them. And then Luke chapter 8, verse 56, Jairus' daughter raises her from the dead, gives her back to the parents, and he says, don't go tell anybody. Well, if you're trying to establish that your kingdom is here and real and prove that it's here, you would think you would want to establish it by proclaiming and showing everybody instead of telling... no. So why did Jesus, all those times, and there were some others, tell them, don't tell anybody? Because Jesus had a crowd problem. I think I mentioned this last week. Because when people begin to hear what he's going to do, he, they crowd him, and he can't minister to people. He can't get to where he needs to get to. All right. Another reason, it's not in my notes... If, Jesus, if the kingdom of God was proclaimed to show that what God's kingdom is like, and God's kingdom, according to these theologians, does not need to include healing, it does not need to demonstrate itself. Let's assume that's why it was done. Is there any less need today to demonstrate and prove that Christ is real? In fact, the gifts of the Spirit that are in John, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 they are called by Paul manifestations of the Spirit. A manifestation is to show forth with physical evidence that the Spirit of God is here and He's moving in what He's, going to, what he's willing to do. 
So we still need these. If that's what he did them for, then we still need that maybe more today than we bid back then. So that's just not right. But let's look at, let's look at some things that Jesus said. The real meaning of proclaiming the kingdom of God. Here's, here's where the difference is. These theologians are saying that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God to establish the foundation for his church. Isn't it more likely that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God so we would know what that kingdom's like? He came to reveal what the Father was like. So instead of just proving something about God and his kingdom, Jesus performed these miracles to demonstrate that God cares about and wants to deliver you from every effect of sin in your life, not just to save your spirit and your soul, but to redeem and bring healing and wholeness to your body. If you go back to the garden, the way God created us, there was no sickness there. God created them whole and well and told them to be fruitful and multiply and enjoy their life. So anything that interferes with that is not of God. Anybody getting anything out of this? I am. You just listen in. God cares for our physical condition, and he wants to see us whole. 1 John chapter 3. God's kingdom came to destroy Satan's authority over this earth. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, shown forth, that he might destroy not the work of the devil, but the works of the devil. Whatever Satan has brought destruction, spirit, soul, and body, as a result of the open door he has through sin, Jesus came to win that back for the kingdom of God. Jesus came to win back what Satan gained through what Adam and Eve did. And so the kingdom of God is a kingdom of redemption. It's a kingdom of restoration. I mean, if you look at every aspect, from the very beginning when God created his kingdom on the earth, there was wholeness, there was abundance, there was fruitfulness, there was peace, there was joy, because that's what God's kingdom is like. When Jesus and then Satan comes through the disobedience of Adam, and Satan comes to destroy all that well-being, to destroy their life, to destroy the kingdom of God on the earth, Jesus comes to begin the restoration of God's kingdom on the earth, and wherever he went, he acted to bring that rest, begin that process of restoration. And then we see in the end, when, when the heaven and earth is recreated, it's all restored back to the way it was in the beginning, because that's what God's kingdom is like. I can't imagine God's kingdom has sickness and disease in it. Like God's kingdom has joy and peace and wholeness and well, wealth and wellness. And Jesus came to bring that kingdom to the earth. So wherever Jesus was with that kingdom, there was healing. And again, we've talked about this before. 
Jesus healed multitudes, many examples where he healed multitudes and multitudes of multitudes. That means everybody in that group received a healing that needed it. That's God's kingdom, what God's kingdom is like. And what Satan's has managed to do is get the church to cut out a major part of that kingdom and tell people that God loves you, God say it will save you, but the real tangible benefits of that, you've got to wait till you go to heaven and, and get it. But let's see what Jesus says. Let's go. Let's go to John chapter 14. They'll have it up here, John 14. And Jesus is started by saying to them, uh, I, I'm breaking the news to them, which he's been trying to tell them all along, that I've got to leave you. I'm going, and, and where I'm going, you, you know, but I've got to prepare a place for you. And I'm not going to leave you as an orphan, I'm going to come back for you. And then, then G, Philip asked him, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said, <laughs> how, long have you, how long have you been with me? And yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, we've talked about this before, but I'll just go over it again, because most of this you've heard before, I've heard before. But it's the process of hearing it over and over again, it begins to break down these religious walls that we have in us. So it's not just hearing it, it's not just understanding it. There are walls in our mind that are limiting what can get down into our heart, and that's what has to be broken down. Have I been with you so long, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Now, notice it's an interesting, it's almost as if Jesus is changing subjects. Because he says, he talks about, that, uh, that I don't speak on my, so he talks about speaking, proclaiming. And then he says, it's the Father in me that does the works. So part of Jesus' proclaiming the Father is the works that he did, the deeds that he performed. Verse 11. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe for the sakes of the works themselves. So the works tell a story. They tell that the Father's actually in Jesus. Most, look at this. Most assuredly, I say to you, that he who believes in me, the works that I do, will he do also. Stop there a second. I just read a commentary, well-known commentary, that says that Jesus did these works, he gave them to the apostles to do, so that the church would establish that the kingdom of God was here. Once that's established, these works are not needed anymore. And for anybody to ask God to do those works is literally to presume on him. 
Wow. But Jesus said, we're to do those works. Oh, but it's the apostles. That's what he said. But that's not what Jesus said. Look what he said here. Most assuredly. Now, when Jesus says most assuredly, often that's verily, verily, or literally it means amen, amen, which is Jesus is emphasizing something. Most assuredly, I said to you, because he had to tell them, look, this is so shocking that I got to tell you, I really mean this. Most assuredly, I say to you that you 12 apostles, no, look, he who believes in me. I want that to sink in. He who believes in me. He doesn't put in there, in the first century of the church. Oh, in the second century of the church. Until you have the Bible. Until the church has been established. No. He who believes on me. Let's think about where else Jesus says that and how important that is. That phrase, he who believes on me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him shall not perish. So that term, whosoever believes on me, is used to define who's not going to perish. That's not limited to the apostles. That's not limited to the first century. It's whosoever. It's an open door to whoever qualifies by that standard, which whoever believes on me, in me. This is Jesus saying this. This is not an this is not this is not some commentary. This is not me saying this. Jesus said, "Who he who believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also." So let's talk about what those works are cuz we just looked at a bunch of them. We just saw they were not isolated cases. The predominant thing that Jesus did was to teach in the synagogue proclaim the good news of the kingdom, and then display that good news by showing God's character and the nature of the kingdom by healing people that were sick. Delivering people that were possessed and influenced by demons. And in some cases, raising the dead. Those are the works Jesus did, so that has to be the works that Jesus is talking about. Now, I've heard teachers water this down by saying he's referring to preaching the gospel, getting people saved. But he did those works. He doesn't qualify that. And then he says, greater works than we will, will you do because I go to my Father. And people debate about what the greater works are, and yet we're not doing the works. This has got to sink in. This is not just theology. This is Jesus speaking. And so I'm going over this and over this and over this because we have to begin to renew our mind. This is something we're called to do. This is something we're called to do, to preach the gospel and proclaim the kingdom of God. When people see God cares enough about them to bring healing to them, they're going to listen more. But we have to be bold enough to do it. 
And most of the time we're not bold enough because we don't have any confidence that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. And that's because our minds are not renewed to what the word says. Instead, our minds are, 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 are caked with theological teaching, which you may not recognize you have, but it's all around us. I used examples last week of being in situations where it's interesting because um, there's a story in, in Matthew, I think Matthew 9, I think it is, where, where Jesus is, is in a house teaching. Um, and it says the rulers, the, the religious rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were there to hear him. And I'm sure they weren't there to hear him to learn. They were trying to find some fault with him. It's the story of a man who was paralyzed. And his friends carry him on this cot, this pallet. And they come to the door, and it starts by saying the power of God was present to heal. Now think about that. Because again, religion teaches us that God's will may be... Most people will believe God will heal some people. So God's will is to heal some people, but not necessarily everybody. But here it says the power to heal was present. It was available to whoever looked for it, received it. And you've got a room full of theologians who know the word, and none of them are getting it. And a man's brought paralyzed on a cot, and they can't get in. So they climb up on the roof with him, and they start tearing the tiles up, and they lower him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him, as it says to him, can see his faith. That's what it says. He could see his, you can see faith. And he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And now all the religious people get all upset because they think he's blaspheming. Now, isn't that ironic? Here's God come in the flesh and they're accusing him of blasphemy because they don't recognize who he is. And Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Rise up, get up, and take your pallet and go home. And he did. In that generation, because of the things that Jesus had done, it was easier for people to believe that he could heal than it was to believe he could forgive. Things are turned around now. I remember when we first went to Oklahoma to go to Bible school. The church we had went to had a Sunday night service, which almost all of them did. And one of the first Sunday nights, uh, Oral Roberts' son Richard was there to do a healing service. And we're sitting somewhere in the back, and I'd never seen anything like this before. And he starts by sharing. I can still see him. starts by sharing. He said, for me, it's hard to believe that you won't be healed tonight. I, it's I have to work hard to believe that you're not... I believe everybody's going to be healed tonight. I know it. And I'm looking at him and says, I've got just the opposite. And then I realized, this man grew up as a young boy, sitting in meeting after meeting after meeting, watching blind eyes open, deaf ears open, watching crutches thrown down, people in wheelchairs get up. He saw miracles come in the father, his father's ministry year after year after year after year after year, and then begin to see them in his own ministry. He was raised in an atmosphere of faith. I was raised in the opposite atmosphere. I remember sitting watching television with my family, and they were making fun of him. 
and making fun of that it was all tricksters. So I had something and still do sometimes to overcome because it was built in me, that unbelief was built in me growing up. Many of us have been in churches that had this kind of religious a- attitude. It may not have been that Jesus never, he- that God never heals, but it may be that he only heals some. We don't know who he's going to heal. But that's almost as worse because if, if you don't know he's, his will is to heal you, how do you know you're one of the ones? It undercuts faith. I heard a minister, well-known minister, I like him. I like a lot of teaching on healing. And he talks about, well, you know, he said there's some teachers out there that say, well, if people aren't healed, it's because they didn't, their faith wasn't strong enough. And he says, that's just ridiculous. I'm saying, that's interesting. That's what Jesus said. I must climb through the TV. I said, that's exactly what Jesus said when his disciples came to him and said, how come we couldn't cast out the demons? Jesus said, because of your unbelief. And then he told them how to develop it. Over and over again, the condition for receiving something that God has given us is we must believe. But here's the thing. I didn't mean to get into this yet tonight, but we might as well because we're at that point. The key to receiving is you have to believe it in your heart. Mark eleven twenty three and 24. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he said shall come to pass, he shall have whatever he said. Proverbs 4.25 Guard your heart with all diligence, because out of your heart flow the issues that would actually mean the forces of life. And so we can believe in healing. We can believe all these things we're teaching. We can believe them with our mind and agree with them. And we can believe them with all of our mind and we can totally convinced in our mind. But that's not what Jesus says enables you to receive. It's getting what you believe in your mind down into your heart. And that's a process the Bible calls renewing your mind. I'm, I'm going to do, uh, I just, I didn't mean to announce it now. I haven't told, told anybody this yet. But, but sometime in this summer, I'm going to teach again that series, Renewing the Mind, which I used to teach in, in school of ministry. Because it talks about how to get control of your mind. It talks about what your mind's purpose is and how to use your mind for God's purpose and not let the enemy use your mind. Because in many cases, we have, we have strongholds that are built up in our mind, and not just about this, but about other things, whether God loves you, whether God's forgiven you, all kinds of things that we struggle with that you may not even be conscious that you're struggling with that are affecting your ability to walk in something God's provided for you. And that's because there are strongholds in our mind because your mind controls what goes into your heart and your mind controls what comes back out of your heart. If I stand here or anybody stands here and they start teaching you something, even if it's out of the Bible, and you don't agree with that, it will, never get, it will not get into your heart because your mind will just deflect it. You may store it somewhere or you may just reject it. 
This is why Satan tries to distract us when the Word of God is being taught so that it doesn't get into at least our mind and then get down into our heart. But when they're, when they're ideas, when they're teachings, when they're experiences that are stuck in our mind for years that block, that filter it out, block it from getting down into our heart, then the only way to go around that is you have to keep putting it in. You have to keep putting it in. You have to keep putting it in. And it can be hard at first because your mind rejects it, gets bored with it, doesn't like it. Your flesh will get mad. But I found that if I keep at it, I keep putting it in, I'm watching my heart begin to open up and begin to receive it. But just because it's received, it doesn't mean it's fully planted there and brought forth fruit. Jesus used a parable. I'm, I'm going all over the place tonight, but this is where I think the Spirit of God is taking us. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus uses the parable of the sower. And he says, if you don't understand, if you can't understand this parable, you're not going to understand anything else that I teach. So it's that important. And the parable, of course, is Jesus tells about the seed that's sown, that goes and sown, and it lands on the road. And then there's seed that goes by the wayside and where there's, where there's soil, but it's thin. And it takes root and it grows up, but when the sun comes up, it burns out and just bears no fruit. Then there's seed that gets thrown in the soil, but the soil's full of rocks, it's full of weeds, and the seed takes root and grows up, but it's, it grows up and doesn't produce very good fruit because there are other things in the soil that, that, that compete for the nutrients that are in, in the soil that are intended for that seed. And then, of course, there's the seed that's good ground, and the seed's planted in there, and it takes root, it grows, prospers, it comes forth, and it brings forth a harvest of 30, 60, and 100 fold. And then Jesus says, the key is this, my father is the husband, and he's the one that sows it, and the seed is the word of God. God's word will always produce exactly what God intends it to produce if it gets into our heart and stays there and takes root. It has to produce the fruit because it's God's word. Isaiah 55 says, that word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return void, but it shall produce what I sent it to do. God's word created the universe. God's word produces the fruit, but it has to get into our heart. So as we learn of these things that we talked about tonight, that Jesus says, that the, this, 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 take this verse. We can all sit here tonight and read that and say, that's what Jesus, that's what it says. Now, you may read that and just argue, I, that can't possibly be true. If that's the thought going through your mind, it's never got, it doesn't stand a chance of getting into your heart. Satan's already stole the word. So, all right, I read it and I understand what it says. Jesus is saying, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, well, let me ask you that. Is that me? Yeah, I believe in him. So he's talking to me. Because see, there again, so many years I've read that with this religious thinking, and I just kind of, I may read the words, but those words, he who believes in me, don't get in, because I'm thinking Jesus is talking to his disciples, his apostles, of course we know they could do these, we saw Jesus give them the authority, of course they were chosen by Jesus, they are men that Jesus chose, and they were holy men, of course they weren't holy when he chose them, they weren't even holy when he was raised from the dead. He had to rebuke them when he was raised from the dead for their unbelief. They're standing on the Mount of Ascension. They've seen him raised from the dead. 
They've been with him for 40 years to 40 days. They've seen him do things since he's been raised from the dead, and they still struggled with believing in him. So we, but we think of them and say, well, okay, I understand they could do it, but not me. And we don't realize that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about you. He's not you watching tonight on on video. He's talking to you and talking to me if you believe in Christ. But here's the problem. That gets filtered out in our mind. It can't mean what it says. And that's what keeps us from ask, acting on it. Because it hasn't gotten down in our heart and taken root. And of course, there's an enemy out there who can't afford for it to get into your heart and take root. Because he knows once it gets into your heart and takes root it will start producing fruit in your life and fruit for the kingdom of God because the church is here to do the same thing that Jesus came to do, the same thing he commissioned his apostles to do, and that is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That God is here to save you, not just from your sins. He wants to do that but to save you from whatever it is you're struggling. God wants to heal you. He wants to do miracles. We sang about that. God is a God of miracles. He's still as much a God of miracles today. In fact, he's doing them in other parts of the world because they believe it and they're acting on it. But in this nation and others, not others like us, we struggle with this unbelief because we've not been taught these things. We'll believe God will forgive us because we've been taught that's part of God's character and nature is God forgives. Jesus came and went to the cross so that God could forgive us of our sins. But we saw last week, he also went to the cross. He was also scourged and suffered those stripes so that he could redeem us from the sickness and disease that Satan brings to our bodies as well as to our soul and to our spirit. And I believe that what's behind, ultimately behind this series is to help us wake up, and, and God's talking to me about it, help us to wake up and realize this is part of our commission as the church. And we've not done it here, just like many churches have not done it, because we have to overcome the unbelief in this area. But here Jesus says, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works shall he do because I go to my Father. Well, he's going to the Father, and we believe in him, so all the conditions of that verse have been met. Why don't we see it? Because we really have not let that get down into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, it's tempting at this point to just begin to pray for people for healing, but we have to get this in our hearts. We have to begin to open our eyes by the Spirit, to begin to see what you see, to begin to feel what you feel, and to hear what you hear. You see people around us that are hurting, struggling with sickness and disease, with all kinds of works that Satan is doing in their lives to kill, steal, and destroy. But we know that Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly that includes every area of our life, spirit, soul, and body. And you've called us as your church to proclaim, as these disciples did, 
and the seven, the twelve did, and the seventy did, to proclaim the good news that God's kingdom is here, and you're here to heal, to set free, and to deliver from bondage. Jesus was anointed to do this, and we've been filled with the Spirit for the same anointing to do this. So, Father, open our eyes to see. See what you're saying to us. Open our ears, that our ears may hear the truth, and that our hearts may grasp the truth of the kingdom of God that's come to this earth. This can only happen as the Spirit works within us, reaching out from within us to allow the light to come through. But we must do our part. We must meditate. We must think. We must pray about it. Talk to you about it. Talk to one another about it. And begin to exercise our faith. Thank you for the grace to do this, Father. Without the Holy Spirit, it'll never happen. And we thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.